Welcome to episode 358 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. In my estimation, Zoom is the most commonly used virtual program among online entrepreneurs. Everyone had to make the shift to virtual more than three years ago, so it's not an uphill battle to get participants to accept this technology. Through my event optimization assessment calls, I've been interviewing six and seven figure entrepreneurs about the challenges, snafus, and disruptions they've experienced while using Zoom to launch new products or deliver their programs. And what I'm discovering is that they are dealing with many of the same issues that all online entrepreneurs are facing. Here are just a few that come to mind. Participants unmuting at inappropriate moments throwing off the speaker. Accidental, well, hopefully accidental, annotation drawing on slides that causes major distractions in chat. Using a different Zoom account and realizing last minute breakout rooms are not enabled high registration numbers that are not leading to high attendance, and high participant drop-off before the call to action. In my experience, overcoming these common virtual mistakes will lead to an increase in engagement and sales. To help you solve this, I'm developing a new checklist and a new talk, overcome common virtual meeting mistakes to increase engagement and sales. There are three ways you can experience this training. This training will debut at the Own Your Stage Summit in late November. There will be free tickets for this virtual event available soon. I'm offering a group session for six and seven figure online entrepreneurs and their teams. And you can book a private training for your organization that includes personalized strategy sessions to help you implement these changes and develop more interactive, inclusive, and transformational virtual programs. I'm still booking event optimization assessment calls if you are a six or seven figure entrepreneur and you'd be willing to share how disruptions, snafus, and low engagement have impacted your virtual programs. I'm particularly interested in how these issues impact sales conversions on launch events and participants finishing your programs for all your educational content. If you want to be in the know about these training opportunities or sign up for one of these calls, you can fill out the form at robbysamuels.com forward slash zoom insights and i'll be sure you get the info you request again the form is at robbysamuels.com forward slash zoom insights i cannot wait to hear from you next a word from our sponsor and then we'll dive into this week's show you may know you're listening to this show along the marketing podcast network but did you know there are other great shows on mpn to help your business christy heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called own it Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Today's guest lives in a world where creativity knows no bounds. She's on a mission to unleash untapped creativity, helping teams reach new heights of collaboration and problem solving. 
With over two decades of experience, her expertise spans various sectors from education to private enterprise. Her passion and energy are infectious, and her innovative approach has garnered acclaim and recognition worldwide. She's a certified speaking professional, an international designation earned by only about 17% of the National Speakers Association membership. As a speaker and a trainer, she shares her expertise in innovation, teams, and virtual facilitation. She works with companies that want to be more innovative, such as Mayo Clinic, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and the University of Wisconsin. She hosts the Deliberate Creative podcast and is the designer of Climber Cards, a creativity and team-building tool used in over 45 countries and at my virtual book launch party earlier this year, which she hosted. Please join me in welcoming Amy Climber CSP. Thank you, Robbie. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited to dive in with you. As you know, this is a show about building strong networks and the context is leadership. So tell me, how do you define leadership and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Okay, I'm going to answer the second part first. Sure. Um, I think realizing I had the skills to lead was definitely like a gradual process. Mm-hmm. Um, going way back to high school, I... Um, I played soccer for four years on the varsity team and my senior year, I was asked to be the captain, but, and I can't remember exactly how it worked, but I think basically I was like, uh, no, no, that like, I was too freaked out. And the coach was like, okay, we'll have a co-captain. There'll be two of you. And I was like, okay, fine. Um, and so I think just, you know, as a young person, like in high school and college, just that idea of being in a leadership role really freaked me out. And then in college, uh, I went to the University of North Carolina in Charlotte, and there was this amazing program there called Venture, which is an outdoor program where students lead outdoor trips for other students. But it's very, um, like it, it was, the staff were heavily involved. And so it was really a leadership development program. And I just had all sorts of opportunities to go to trainings around leadership and then get at every single time we did anything, a trip, uh, let a team building session, anything, we got feedback. We gave and received feedback. And that's when I realized, oh, okay, I, I can do some of this stuff. I'm pretty good at this. And I think that that's, I was thinking about it as I was getting ready for this podcast that I think sometimes young people don't know what's working and what's not. And so that feedback I found super helpful. Um, Yeah. And when I, by my senior year of college, the group, the program was like teased me all the time because my sophomore year when I came in, I was so ridiculously shy. Uh, So a lot of growth there. And then, you know, things just sort of uh, continued throughout my career. So that's a little bit of like when I started to understand like, oh, maybe I could be a leader and not that it's like a one-time thing. I, and I think being a leader means, I think there's a couple things. One is having a vision, like holding that vision or you know, building a shared vision, that's even better. And helping the group or whoever you're working with, like kind of work towards that vision together. Um, it also means... putting a lot of trust in the people that you work with. Um, And I think that the more you expect from them, the more trust you have to give them. Um, And so that trust might be like letting them do it themselves, letting them figure out, uh, yeah, you want X, Y, Z done, but there's like a hundred ways to do that. Step back. Don't like give them, you know, the step-by-step directions um, because then I think what you'll 
get is maybe a lower level performance. This is a generalization. Sometimes that is appropriate, but I think that trust is a big piece of it. Holding that vision is really important. And then I also think like being able to facilitate because that's really what it is to me, in my opinion, is like leading is basically being able to facilitate a group and lead a group. Um, And so having those skills is really important. So uh, vision, trust, and facilitation, I I could get behind all these. And I particularly like your emphasis on if you want to build more trust, you have to give more space for the other person Mm -hmm. to do it in their own way. And the more you give people space to do it in their own way, the more trust that builds. And and I love that. It it, it really kind of succinctly explains why sometimes you know, we, we sometimes micromanage backfires, you know, like, exactly. it's like people stop, they like learned, um, learned helplessness basically is what happens. Yes, like they yes. stop thinking about possibilities and next steps. I remember years ago, you're reminding me of this, like I used to work a lot with interns who were probably about the age you were when you were in this program in college, you know, they're like 19, 20, about to turn 21 years old. So they're like between sophomore and senior year of, of college. And I told them that the best thing they could do is learn how to ask the right question. So I said, before you come and knock on my door, I want you to try a few things. But if you spend 10 minutes and it's not getting you anywhere close, like figure out what the right question is, take a minute to do that and then knock on my door. Mm. And, you know, like you said, like just giving them the space to sort of figure it out, put some guardrails. <laughs> Don't spend yeah. three hours <laughs> trying to figure this out. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised in a way and not to hear that you were really shy when you're younger. It's not that I think of you as being like a loud, obnoxious, take all the air out of the room kind of person at all, but I don't see you as like a shrinking violet either. So when you were on the playground as a kid, were you really the like shy kid who was off on the sides or like did you just have a few close friends? Like how did you sort of show up and how did your teachers and obviously your coach later in life, like, they saw a lot of potential in you, even maybe if you didn't see it. So how were you showing up in your own mind? And how do you think you were showing up in other people's minds? Yeah, well, that's a good question about, you know, what was I like on the playground? Um, I definitely wasn't like just like off by myself. I wasn't, um, you know, kind of a recluse in that way. Um, okay, so I'm thinking about elementary school. And my sister and brother and I, we all, my, my mom was a single parent who owned a business, worked full time plus. Um, and so after school, we went to this program called extended day, which was basically like, you know, daycare at school. And the very first hour was always outside on the playground. And, um, (laughs) it was in Florida. It was, there was, I remember there was like two trees on the entire playground. It was a, a new school that used to be a cow field. So anyway, and the teacher said one, um, under one tree and you're like, not allowed to go hang out over there. Um, so Anyway, it was just a big field. And basically I was always like, let's play soccer. Let's do something instead of just sitting around. And so I would try to like corral people to play soccer, which had um, pretty mixed results. Some days I was successful. I would say over half the time I wasn't just because like the people that were there that day might not have been into it. Um, But I definitely... So I I would do that, but it was more like going to ask individual people like, hey, Robbie, would you want to play soccer if I get a group together? And versus like standing there and announcing to everyone, hey, who wants to play soccer? Like I wouldn't have done that. Um, So yeah, yeah, even though asking one at a time takes a certain amount of a skill and backbone and like chutzpah, like 
like you, you're, you know, you're describing yourself as like a, I mean, it's good, sort of almost like good networking. I always used to call that a whisper campaign. <laughs> like you're like, Hey, do you think you all want to do this? And like, I'd get quorum behind the scenes. And then I'd be like, Hey folks, let's go do this. And they'd be like enough people like, yeah. And they think it's their idea. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're still really good at that. I feel like you do that a lot of times at the, at our NSA conferences and you're like, okay, I'm getting a group together for dinner. Who wants to join? And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, I love that you and I just, just to make sure we let everyone else know what this is. We get to see each other annually at the national speaker association conference, uh, which has been really fun. And particularly you and I got to know each other through the rainbow speakers group, which is for LGBT speakers and our allies. And, uh, and you're one of the people who've really stepped up uh, and you don't know it yet, but I'm going to be handing you the reins. <laughs> so Okay. <laughs> Stuff to talk about. <laughs> Something to talk about. You're like, yeah, sure. I'll help more. And um, I'm like, ah, it's another example of people seeing leadership potential in you. I know. Right. That's the problem. Like you, you, you step up as a leader, you show some potential and like, Oh, Hey, here's some more work. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it's good. It's good. when you were 12 or so years old, did you have a sense of what you were going to be when you grew up? Was there like a clear path based on what you, you know, your mom did or, like was college a given? Was there was there something particularly you really wanted to be? I would say college was a given. Um, that was it. Was just the conversation in our house was that was the expectation. So that wasn't even. It didn't occur to me not to go to college. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like you know twelve, thirteen, fourteen, what I really wanted to be was a marine biologist. And we lived. I lived in Orlando, Florida. Um, I have been to SeaWorld, I don't even know how many times. At one point, we had a season pass. And I would try to convince my parents to, um, my, my parents were divorced. So mostly I went with my dad. And I would try to convince him just to, when we got to SeaWorld, drop me off at the dolphin feeding pool. And I would just sit there for as long as they would let me, like hours with my, like hanging over the side of the pool with my hands in the water hoping for a dolphin to come up to me. And I don't, I don't think you could do that anymore, but, um, but I, I, I loved that. And then, and I went into college with that expectation or with that goal, but I didn't do a very good job of choosing a school that was a good fit for that career. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I went to UNC Charlotte, it's hours from the beach. <laughs> And, the geography problem. Yeah, exactly. Like there was no marine biology focus, right? I just so naive. Um, I also remember too back then, like choosing a college, you had to like look through this like black and white book that just listed all the schools, and it was like they all look the same. There was no websites yet, and oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, but in college, I actually there were some professors that just sort of blanketed like. Being a marine biologist is a really bad idea because there's only seven jobs a year in the whole country or some ridiculous thing. So there was a lot of like dissuasion from doing that. Um, So I ended up focusing just on general biology, well, specifically ecology and environmental science. And then I thought that's what I was going to go do. And so I had this very first job after college at the uh, U.S. Forest Service in Washington State. And after being there for a few months, it was just a seasonal position. I was like, I don't know if I want to do this kind of work for the rest of my life. And in college, I had also been leading all these outdoor programs or outdoor trips. And the program that I worked for was much less about, oh, we're going to go teach people how to rock climb. And it was more about, hey, we're going to use rock climbing as a metaphor 
for how to take risks and how to build your leadership skills. And that was really cool to me. So after that one job in my biology field, um, I pivoted and then I just went into this, like got more into facilitating and outdoor education and that kind of thing. How did you even know? I have so many questions. One, an observation that Pacific Northwest is about as far away as you can get from Florida. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. There, there was probably some intention there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I'm glad you figured out pretty quickly that that wasn't your calling. But then how did you even know, like, was the term facilitation and leadership, were those words used when you were in college in this program? Or was it obscured? And just, it just happened to be what you were, what was happening. And, but, mm. you know, the focus was on the rock climbing and the result was you grew as a person or did people actually name that role and that outcome? Yeah, that's a good question. And in this case, they were naming it. Um, mm. Definitely the facilitation. I mean, I, at the time I was, um, I don't know if I actually owned any books on facilitation yet, but the program had, you know, a bookshelf full of books around facilitation. And there was a lot of thought put into, I mean, even just like, you know, you're leading an event and the group shows up, how, how are you sequencing things? And there was a lot of thought around um, how you might change things for this group of students versus, oh, we have a group of faculty coming in to do a team building program. How might you change things for that? Um, so there was definitely a lot of talk around the nuances of facilitation. And we use that, that phrase for sure. Yeah. I actually, I'm just realizing that no one in my world used that term when I was kind of growing up. And it, it, it's sort of, it's like, I, it took a long time for me to realize that that was that skill that I had. In fact, the pandemic really crystallized it. And I will also tell you that I joined the NSA MC Facebook group in like 2018. And I felt like like an interloper, <laughs> like I felt like I didn't belong because it wasn't something I was like screaming on the top of my website and I'm an MC. And again, <laughs> once we went virtual, I'm like, oh yeah, all I do is MC. Um, so it's great that you had some language for this skill that you were interested in and that made it easier than to pursue it as, as, as like a leadership or as a professional development for yourself. Where did you first start seeking those next steps? Like, how did you make the shift from this sort of seasonal role that you turned out like wasn't your thing? And now you're now you're done with school. So you're like, okay, <laughs> I need a job. How yeah. do you, how do you continue along that path? I was, I guess at the time, I, and this is, I think the, the beauty and the value of, of, you know, when you're 21, 22 is um, everything I own fit in my car. I didn't need a lot of money because I didn't have a lot of expenses yet. Um, and so, and, and obviously this, that situation might vary from person to person or especially today. I mean, student loans are a much bigger challenge today than they were. Um, but my focus was just on the next thing. And so actually right after I finished that job at the U.S. Forest Service, it was November, I was living in Southern Washington state and I basically just moved to Portland, Oregon, because it was the nearest city and I didn't know what else to do. And I got a job at REI. So <laughs> not very exciting. Um, but interestingly, while the job itself was kind of boring, especially after Christmas when people weren't showing up anymore, um, it gave me an opportunity to buy a bunch of gear at a really low price, um, which then gave me the opportunity to do more things outside. Um, I 
anyway, that following summer, I worked for a company where I was leading wilderness trips in Colorado for teenagers. So anywhere from nine days to 21 day courses and went and did that kind of learned "Mm, teenagers aren't my thing. (laughs) love the work. Don't know if I love the teenagers. Uh, and, and I've since after that, I did later work with teenagers again, and it, it, it's always kind of like hit or miss. Um, but I, I just would focus on the next thing. I'm like, okay, this job is three months. I'm going to go take this job for three months. And when that was over, I got another job in Colorado for several more months. And so I wasn't focused right away on like, what's the big job I'm going to have for the rest of my life. Um, and then I realized like, I really like this stuff, but I wanted, I could see that you can't do field work for the rest of your life. Uh, at least I didn't want to. And so I ended up, um, and my, and meanwhile, my mom is like pushing me to get a, a master's degree. And she's like, all of my kids will get master's degrees, <laughs> which did end up happening. Um, and I was still at this point sort of thinking about marine biology. And so I went and I sat in, at some point in here, I sat in on a class at um, actually University of Washington on a, I don't know, some sort of lecture related to biology. And it was a graduate class. And I literally was trying not to fall asleep in the class. <laughs> and I was like, um, this might not be a good fit. So I ended up going back to get a master's degree in outdoor education, which is basically experiential education. And that was a really good experience. I I drove all the way back across the country to University of New Hampshire for that degree. Um, But yeah, at some point in there, I realized like, I just, this is what I want to do. And I just was focusing on the next thing. It's a couple of observations. One, your mom plays a big role in like, you're continuing to do higher education. Um, it sounds like she had a goal for each of her kids and her kids rose to the occasion. Um, you also had a lot of, like you said, a lot of flexibility in, this is like your early twenties, right? Like, you know, you said you didn't have a lot kind of riding on what happened next. So you could take a three month gig here and then three months there and sure. I'll work at REI over the winter break and you know, whatever, whatever it was just to kind of stay, you know, next to it and uh, adjacent at least to the idea of it. I do love the fact that you keep giving yourself opportunities to test out new ideas. So like sitting out on the class, uh, similar to you taking a three month in the, the forest service, like just to see if this is something you're still interested in. And then, you know, to ultimately go fully into a master's in outdoor education, experiential learning, um, which, which makes like hearing that as a conclusion of your story is like, Oh yeah, that makes so much sense for how I think of what you do today, even though it's not about being outside anymore, but experiential learning very much seems appropriate to who you are. So it's like, you, it's like there's this, this thread that on the outside, you're like, well, how does this kid who's running around Colorado <laughs> end up doing what this is today? Um, and you also have a willingness to move around the country, which oh, yeah. it's, it's an openness to new things that I really admire. Cause I think some people wouldn't have had the same journey as you just by virtue of how far afield from familiar it was to keep shifting and moving. I'm curious where in all this did you come out? Because mm. like that probably impacts some of where you wanted to live and like what jobs you said yes to and what the cultures were and the places you wanted to be at, you know, how, how does that sort of weave into the story? Yeah. So I came out my senior year of college um, and 
I mean, that was in, so I graduated college in 97. And at the time I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, it was not necessarily a safe place to be. Um, there was, there was a lot going on. I just, I just remember a few political things and it was definitely fairly anti-gay. Um, I would say for a while there, I was pretty closeted. Um, and most of the places I was visiting, like I was pretty wary of, um, it probably wasn't until probably a couple years later, maybe like 99 or 2000 where I was like, you know what? I think that I need to be more out. Um, and at the time I read this book, I, I was working at a, a private high school in Crested Butte, Colorado. And I read this book, I think it was called two and 20. And it was about LGBT teachers and students like, you know, in school and just people's experiences, especially in K-12 education, being gay. And what I realized in reading that book was how important it was for students to see like staff members and teachers who were either openly out or at least openly, you know, allies or, you know, creating like a safe space or trying to. Um, and so at the, at, so I tried to be a little bit more visible and honest about who I was when I was working at this high school, um, just because I felt like maybe I can help impact some kid's life. I really I appreciate how your your like decision to be more open about who you were is influenced by your desire to help others. Mm. Like yeah. it was convenient to stay silent most of the time, but that silence was not helping other people. Yeah. And so you're willing to kind of put yourself out there and, and take a little bit of a risk and, and develop a, a life where that where you could be you and where it also could help other people. Um, that's that's really neat that there's this sort of uh, wanting to help young people in that way when you're working at a school. And it does make a difference. I mean, hundred percent, that's that, you know, national coming out day, October 11th, I was in college in, in the mid nineties. I basically, we graduated around the same time. And, um, I remember asking a lot of people like, why is October 11th national coming out day? And I joked that it's because it was between summer break and winter break. And so you can come home, <laughs> tell your parents and then go away and not have to come back until Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> but it's actually on the one year anniversary of the 1987 March on Washington, um, oh, which was cool. the second March on Washington. And it's the one where they really talked about visibility. Mm. And they said like, you know, it, the, the idea of the second March on Washington was that if you know someone at the time, they only used terms lesbian and gay, the LGBT alphabet wasn't there yet. But they said, if you know someone who's lesbian or gay, you're just much more likely to be open to that. Yeah. And um, they marked the occasion a year later with National Coming Out Day. So um, cool. like it's fitting because all that was happening around the same time, you know. Um, so this was like 88 was when that started. But like, I think in the 90s is when National Coming Out Day, HRC took it on. It became a much bigger project. And that's around the time that you're you know, grappling with all this in the late yeah. 90s. Just a little aside, in, uh, in the late 90s, I became the New York State coordinator of a national LGBT campaign called Equality Begins at Home. And um, it was sort of the antithesis of the March on Washington hat plan for 2000. It was all state focused. And it was my first like, you know, paid to be gay <laughs> like job. <laughs> and, uh, and I was in, in my master's program at the time when it was happening, but it is sort of funny, like what was happening in the world and how we sort of involve ourselves in it. I think it's hard to know, like, especially people who are younger, maybe like 30 and below to understand, like it was, it was really different. 
you know, people were, there was a lot, uh, it was a lot riskier to be out, I think. And I think, I feel like we had it definitely easier than people older than us, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I've also often noticed it's very interesting to see, like, people, like, I've had friends that are 10 years older than me who are also lesbian. And just to see, like, how they navigate life is really different. And compared to people who are 10 years younger than me, oh, wow, this is so fascinating, all based on just like what was going on when they were growing up. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with the executive director of um, an LGBT organization I worked for, and she was like 20, 15, 20 years older than me. And I was like 30, let's say 32. So she's in her 50s. And she said, oh, you know, y'all, we work so hard to get lesbian to be included. And you're all just queer now. I mean, I'm really happy for you, but I can't tell you how hard it was. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and I feel like I'm now nearing 50 and I'm like, oh, man, you don't know how long, how hard it was to get transgender into all those things. And you're all just like, F this. We don't care about gender. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I like, just like, oh, I'm really happy for you. But like, you don't know how hard it was. And I'm like, ah, oh, stop being like, get off my lawn about it. Like, you know, <laughs> generations change. And like, this is part of what we were hoping for is that people ah. stop caring about labels, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really cool, I think, to see like where the younger generation is right now with gender and yeah. sexual orientation. I'm like, yes, this is it's amazing. So yeah. back to your your life story. I'm just so when did you go from outside experiential learning to inside <laughs> experiential learning? Like when did you like you know hang up the the like lumberjack clothes <laughs> and like decide yeah. to come inside <laughs> and play with the rest of us who were not That's like funny. out there? Uh, well, I will just add, I haven't a hundred percent hung up the clothes. I actually just a couple weeks ago got, um, like I've been working on this for like two years. I built up my skills enough to be a whitewater canoe instructor for North Carolina outward bound. Um, so this is just like a thing I do on the side, like once a month, maybe I'll lead like a three day program in the summer, but, uh, yeah, I can't totally let it go. <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually the, the, more seriously, the transition, I would say happened, um, there was a couple points. So right after I finished my graduate program at university of New Hampshire, I got a job at the university of Wisconsin as the assistant director of the outdoor program. And so I moved there, took the job, um, and did that for about three years. And the, while I was in my graduate program, my thesis research was around leadership development. So I was always very interested in that. So I have this job at University of Wisconsin and eventually it is sort of an entry level, like first job out of graduate school, kind of fitting for that sort of context. And after a period, I was like, okay, I feel like I need something different. Um, Meanwhile, the School of Business uh, was hiring a leadership developer, coordinator, I forgot the title, to... They were having it, it. The job was multifaceted, but one facet was they had 25 student organizations within the business school that had just like no supervision. They were running amok. In fact, one student organization, this was the, like the, the tipping point that made them realize they needed to hire someone. One student organization wanted to have a fundraiser for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which is awesome. And so they decided to host a keg party. And the university was like, you're doing what? For what? No. Mm -mm." And the students did not understand (laughs) what's wrong with this. This is fine. You know, of course, UW is like a huge party school. Um, Anyway, so my job was to come in and like 
rein in and provide some guidance here, and then also to, to develop a leadership program for the undergraduate students. And I got that job in part because I was so focused on leadership development across campus in the outdoor program. Um, so anyway, go there and I worked there for two years in the school of business and, uh, I eventually left the university because it, it's just so, uh, if you've worked at a university, you know, this, the pace is glacial. It is so slow. And so if you have a new idea, even if it's the idea is not, doesn't cost anything and you're willing to do the work, they're like, oh yeah, we could do that in about a year. And you're like, how about next month? I mean, there's nothing to this idea. Let's just get going, you know, but no. So I got a little bored, um, but eventually there's some other things in between we can get into if you want, but eventually I opened my consulting practice, which I have now, which is, was in 2009. And I thought that I would go, I would do more outdoor ed type things and like take, you know, corporate groups out rock climbing to look at, you know, risk and help them develop connections. And I pretty quickly learned that I could get paid 10, 20 times the amount if I stayed inside, <laughs> which is like ridiculous to it think about. No it makes yeah, no it makes, sense. It makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, the skills required to, you know, to be outside, but again, it's all about perceived value. And right. I just couldn't quite figure out how to do what I wanted to do and, and get paid to do it outside. And so I was like, all right, I'm just going to come inside and do this. And then it worked fine. So what, what led you to hang your own shingle and like build your own, like you, you're basically hopping around doing different jobs, learning lots of skills, you got another degree. Um, but you, you then jumped into 2009, you, you know, was, was there, was 2008 like the, the economy, like an impact? Cause I know a lot of people that that was part of it, but like, what, what was the impetus for you to decide to become a full-time entrepreneur? Well, there's a couple other steps in between. It wasn't the economy. Um, so I'll just fill in a couple gaps. So after I left the School of Business, which is in 2006, I, like I said, I got bored. Meanwhile, one of the things I've been doing on the side is building, um, I, I was doing a lot of art. And so I, I had always, one of those like childhood dreams had been to be a professional artist. That And that was definitely one that was like, mm -mm, no, no, you're not going to be a starving artist from this family, <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. So I quit my job at the university and I became a full-time artist. Uh, I, I actually was just reading something recently, a paper I wrote. My tax return that year, it was either 06 or 07, I made $12,000 <laughs> selling my art which obviously is not enough to live on. Um, and, and I think I think there were a number of factors of why it, I wasn't making enough money. One, I actually don't think I was good enough as an artist. Um, and there weren't enough, like Etsy hadn't started or just started. Facebook was brand new. Like all these channels weren't in place yet. Um, but anyway, so I needed to find something new. And I took this job, another job at, back at UW. And one month into that, it was like one of those jobs, like I knew before taking it, it was a bad fit. But I took it anyway. And one month into that job, a friend of mine sends me a job announcement for this job out in um, Durango, Colorado, as a professor in outdoor education at Fort Lewis College. And I was like, and he, and he sent it to me. He's like, Hey, Amy, could you like pass this on to other people? And, and I open, I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And I opened it up and I'm like, oh, this is my dream job. 
and it did not require a PhD, which at the time I didn't have. And, but meanwhile, I'm in a, I'm in a relationship with my now wife and we'd been together for two years and I come home and I'm so excited. I'm, I'm telling her about this job that I'm talking so fast. She can't understand me. She's like, Amy, Amy, slow down. What is going on? So I finally get it all out. And I'm like, yeah, we could go live in Durango, Colorado. And I'm so excited. And she's like, Durango? What? And she's like, born and raised in Wisconsin, lived one year of her life in another state, has no interest in moving. She has a great job that pays well, much better than mine. And um, yeah, that that was a really interesting period because we had been together long enough that we were living together and committed, but nothing had really tested the relationship. And so this was like the litmus test. Like, what? how are we going to handle this? So... After many conversations, what we decided is that I would take the job. And if she couldn't find anything that was really good within a year, then I would come back to Madison. So I was very upfront with Fort Lewis, thank goodness, um, because after a year, there was nothing. I mean, this town is 15,000 people. The nearest city is three and a half hours away. It's 2008. Everybody's has a hiring freeze. I mean, the mayor had Julie's resume. It was like, she's really qualified. I don't know what, what options there are. Um, so I ended up coming back. But when I came back, I part of our agreement was, I, I'm not going to go work at UW again. There's a lot of great things about it, but I'm not a very good employee uh, because I just have too much of this entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and so I start, that's when I started my consulting practice. It also sounds like having her support in that, like... Oh, right. yeah, absolutely. making a decision like that. I mean, I had a similar moment where, where I, you know, I had a mentor, uh, Dory Clark was, was a friend and a mentor trying to push me out of my comfort zone and my day job. And I was like, Oh, but I get insurance and I get a paycheck. And then I was like, okay, fine. I'm, I'm ready to do this. And my wife, when I left my job to focus on a business, we had this, this one day, I remember, like I went to her three times to tell her that I was going to not take some offers that were coming my way. As soon as people heard I'd left, they were asking to do like, oh, event planning. Oh, can you help us with this fundraising plan? Which oh, was cool. not what I wanted to do. Like it was, it was what I had been doing. And I kept like, I'm like, I'm going to turn down this like revenue. <laughs> and my, finally, my wife was like, are you asking permission to not make money? I'm like, oh, yeah. She's like, listen, I've lived here for, you know, eight years without you. I don't, I love you, but I don't need you. <laughs> I was like, thank you. It's like, Oh, I can go <laughs> cool. do this for real. Um, and it's like having that partner who's like, yeah, I believe that what you need is like the ability to actually implement all your ideas um, and not, not have that constriction. Um, but it sounds like what you originally thought you were going to build a business around turn out to not be the outdoor focus. You moved inside quickly. I want to bring to the forefront your climber cards because that seems to really bring full circle your interest in art. So you've got these beautiful deck of cards that are used for facilitation. And so if people could just visualize, um, you know how people like stack rocks, which you're not supposed to leave behind because it's really bad for nature, but people stack rocks as in like, it's an imagine like you're like, oh, balance, you know? Um, so you have this great imagery and are they watercolors? They are. Yeah. I know yeah. only some people will be able to see, but this is what yeah, the box so looks like. Yeah. So they have beautiful watercolors and like different things like hearts or like a purple octopus or whatever it might be. Um, 
and so people grab these cards and, and then can share in small groups in person. And then eventually you had a virtual version. Um, like how, I mean, that's such an interesting insight for taking your art and your facilitation skills and, and sort of bringing them together into a new, beautiful product. Yeah. What, what led to that, which is different. Like, did you see someone do something like that? Like, yeah. Yeah. How did that idea come to the fore? So one of the things I was doing in 2009, 10, 11, around there is um, in addition to my uh, consulting practice, I kind of on the side, I was leading these team building programs for, there was a bunch of different organizations within about an hour drive of me that would hire facilitators to come in for the day to do like, you know, a ropes course program or challenge course program for a group. And the, the, the programs was like five or six of them. And there was a small group of us that worked at all of them. And it was actually pretty cool that all these programs were, were okay with all of us working at all of them. Uh, it was a pretty, um, very collegial environment, but some of the programs had a lot of money or just more money. And so you showed up there and there's a lot of props and they had like a lot of tools for you to use. And then other programs like had nothing. And so pretty quickly I was just like, I'm a, I was like working on getting all my own props so that I didn't have to like worry about that when I showed up. And I, I love making things. I just, I think I have this just internal drive to always be making something. And so I just made all my own props. Um, and anyway, at the time there was another deck of cards out there uh, that's actually still exists, but it was basically like nine, 1990s clip art. And I just, it wasn't that great. Um, and so I just made my own deck and no intention of selling these or anything. I made my own deck. They were just these little watercolor paintings that I laminated. And one day I was um, leaving this team building program for a group. And it was an interesting group. It was women who were in the trades, like carpentry, electrician, that kind of thing. And so we do this, um, this team building activity. And then, and it did not go well. Like they were arguing with each other and just kind of like not exhibiting great behavior. And so afterwards, we're standing in a circle and I lay all the cards out on the ground and I asked them a question um, of something like, pick a card that represents your own behavior in this activity. And people start, people picked, everyone picked a card and they started sharing and it got really real, really fast, which was awesome. Like this one woman, I remember she was, she started crying and she said, I did not. I was not, not doing, not acting how I wanted to act. This is not who I wanted to be. And I don't know why I was, you know, having been such a jerk. And, and um, anyway, so these cards sparked a really cool conversation. So we finished the conversation and we're like walking across a field to another activity that I had set up. And the, or, the person who had brought the group was a really good friend of mine. Her name's Sarah. And Sarah said to me, Amy, these cards you created are really cool. Like, have you ever thought about doing something with them? And I was like, what? No, what do you mean? <laughs> and anyway, that one comment just sparked this idea. And I started doing all this research of like, how do you get things manufactured? And I eventually put it up as a Kickstarter campaign, just partly to see like, would anybody be interested in this? And it was successful. And, and um, I got them printed and started selling them. And and, and still though at the time, and this kind of speaks to, to how small I was thinking, is that I thought it would just be a one-time thing and I was gonna print 500 decks and that would be fun. 
and it would, that would be it. But then I sold all those and orders kept coming in. I was like, oh, okay, I have to refill this order. <laughs> um, and anyway, that was in 2012. And they've now been used in 40, probably actually about 50 countries now. Um, and That's yeah, amazing. I have such, um, I'm just so impressed by people who create physical products. Uh, I almost launched a second podcast on this topic because at the time I had young children, um, really little children. And I was thinking all the people, all the parents who create like inventions to help them as parents. And then those, they find a way to mark, you know, get them produced and then market them. Um, so I was going to, you know, do a, do that kind of story. It was like, like one of those NPR story type things where I was like, I want to know behind the scenes. So I know I like looked into like just the number of steps to get something done. And so even just like a simple deck of cards is not that simple. And I, I understand you're in the process of actually developing another deck of cards, which is great. Yeah. We're about to yeah, I, into it. I, yeah, I wanted to have it for like the 10 year anniversary, but yeah, that didn't happen. So here I am. I'm going to be lucky to get it in at the, by the end of this year, 2023. Um, yeah. And it, you adapted it also for virtual, which is, which is incredible, given that you had really primarily been um, focusing on in person. Were you doing virtual programming before 2020? I was, yeah. And, and part of what happened, well, I, I think you and I kind of had in some ways a similar path in 2020, but all these people started reaching out to me that March and saying, hey, Amy, I know you've been doing Zoom for a long time. Can you show us how to do this well? And at first I was like, oh yeah, sure. Let's jump on a call. I'll be happy to show you. And then it was just too many people. And so I had this webinar, I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you all what to do in this webinar. And like 600 people signed for the webinar, which that's a lot for me. H half of them I didn't know. And then during the webinar, I launched this course called Leading Engaging Virtual Meetings, which I then led six times over the next year. And, but the other thing that was happening is almost daily there at the beginning of the pandemic, I was getting an, e an email from someone saying, Hey, Amy, how do I use climber cards virtually? Do you have any ideas? They're like, are you cool if we just scan them in? And I was like, Oh, um, give me a minute. And actually I already had a prototype that I had built in 2014 that was a virtual version. Um, and so I ended up hiring a software company to help me build this out uh, this is one of those projects that if I had any clue what it would have taken, I probably never would have done it. Um, but anyway, there's now this like, in my opinion, a quite impressive platform. It's not just a deck of cards. There's, there's multiple decks. It's completely interactive. Facilitators sign in. They get a unique link for each group that they work with. Um, it's, I, I'm, I'm actually now really proud of it, of where it's gone. So. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen it in action, uh, both a little behind the scenes and also as a participant, uh, and it, it is it is quite impressive. And the fact that you got that up and running in time for people to find it useful, and I mean, we're still using Zoom and other virtual yeah. platforms. Hey, we're we're about to uh, wind down as we as we head into our final wrap up question. It's going to take a quick minute to hear something from our sponsor. All right, here's the wrap up question. Uh, I, first of all, I know you and I are going to stay in touch, <laughs> but let's say it's a year from now. And one of us remembers that I entered you a year earlier and I'm going to be asking you a year from now. And I will actually ask you this when I see you <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <any> <laughs> next summer. Hey, you know, it's been a year 
um, what are we celebrating? What are you most uh, happy about having the last year? Like in, in this case, like what are you most looking forward to in the year ahead? Um, okay, I'm excited about this question because I just signed a contract with a publisher to write a book. And the book is about, I mean, I guess the first draft is maybe a third or halfway done. So we're making some good progress. Um, but it should be uh, like launched fully available for the public in January, 2025. These things are very slow. Um, but yeah, by the time I see you next year, the book will be completely done. Yeah. Fully edited. Um, and maybe, um, it's for leaders who want their teams to be more creative, but they don't know where to start. Um, so that's the main thing that I teach in my uh, consulting practice is teaching companies how to be more creative and innovative. This is really exciting. I can't wait to celebrate with you. And of course, because I love book launches, I want to be on your launch team. Thank you. I'm super excited about that. And I'll be um, your first person to sign up. <laughs> yay. Hey, can I, I know this is your podcast, but can I turn it around and ask you the same question? Like, um, yeah. So thank you. No one ever does, does that. But I just scheduled a first call with someone from LinkedIn Learning. And we're going to explore what's possible and um, I just know I have a ton of content that they don't have around. Mm. I mean, they think they've got event management and virtual facilitation covered. And I know <laughs> that there's you know a better. lot more that could be added <laughs> to their library. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to be doing my due diligence over the next few weeks to fully research that. Um, and I want to thank my friend Denise Jacobs for making that connection Aww. happen for me. Um, so but yeah, I'm really, that was something that's sort of been on my bucket list as a next sort of piece of content that I think would be really helpful is to start creating LinkedIn learning courses. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping a year from now that I will have at least signed to do one, if not actually had done one. That'd that's exciting. That's super cool. It's going to be really valuable for folks. <laughs> thank you. So uh, where can people find you and follow your work? Um, if you want to follow me, I'm at climberconsulting.com and climber is spelled C-L-I-M-E-R. And if you want a deck of climber cards, you can go to climbercards.com and you can find the physical deck or sign up for a free trial with the virtual version. Yeah. And you can also find me on LinkedIn. Fantastic. We'll put all these links in the show notes at onthechmooze.com, including a link to your podcast. Uh, I'm so excited you got to join us. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for sharing. Yeah, thank you, Robbie. This was fun. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Amy. What is your key takeaway? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at onthechmooze.com. Look for episode 358. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. Subscribe or follow for free so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week when I'll be interviewing another talent professional who overcame challenges on their way to success. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership and entrepreneurial journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. 
That's On The Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.